Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome back to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I'm sure that many of you listening have had a little play around with ChatGPT, the AI chatbot that was released recently by OpenAI. It's fair to say that the tool has created quite a big splash, strong views both for and against, and a slew of sensationalist headlines. If we put the hyperbole to one side for a moment, it's undeniable that AI is becoming increasingly pervasive in our lives. AI is also giving rise to a lot of questions and debates around its impact on our society and our work. To help us dive deeper into the questions around AI, automation and how to protect our human uniqueness, I am joined by Tomas Chamorro Primusic, Professor of Business Psychology at University College London and Columbia University, Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower Group, and the author of a fantastic new book, I Human, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique, which will be published at the end of February 2023. I've had the pleasure of knowing Tomas for quite a few years, and I always look forward to talking with him on topics related to the world of work. And today, I'm particularly excited about our conversation as we delve into the implications of AI, automation, and their potential disruptiveness to the workforce, as well as how we can ensure that human values remain at the core of our work environment as technology advances. So, join me and Tomas as we explore the fascinating world of AI. Thomas, welcome back to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I think the last time we spoke was was back in July 2020, uh, the kind of during those first uncertain few months of the pandemic. Um, we're in 2023 now, um, and the majority of restrictions have been listed in, in most countries, I think probably pretty much all countries actually. And hopefully we're starting to see the back end of the pandemic, although we obviously recognize that it's still affecting probably some of the people listening to this call at the moment. Thomas, for those listeners who may not have had a chance yet to listen to our previous conversation, could you please share a little bit about yourself? Yes, of course. And uh, it's great to be back, David. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm Tomas. I'm born and raised in Argentina. My background is in organizational psychology. And I really study two things, leadership and the intersection between human and artificial intelligence. And I do you know, a lot of work in this area, writing, doing research, and trying to apply some of the science to the real world, mostly in my job as Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower Group, where we try to kind of bring the science to life to help organizations find better talent and find talent thrive wherever they go. Thomas, we, we, you know, we've known each other for a number of years. And you know, as I said, I always enjoyed reading your your work. And actually, I've been reading your your new book over the uh, the, the Christmas holidays, uh, which is published, I think, on, on February the 28th. Uh, so the book is I Human, AI Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. Thomas, can you tell us, in, as you're the author, can you tell listeners in your own words a little bit about the book? Yeah. So in a nutshell, it's a book that examines the impact that artificial intelligence is having on human behavior. It is not a book about the future. It's a book about the present. You know, I think, and I know that you interview a lot of futurologists and people who make predictions. I wanted to focus on what we know, which is what's happening now. And I wanted to do a book that is a book 
on AI, but not really on the machine or computer aspects of it, but the behavioral or human aspects of it. Because I think we've mostly, by and large, neglected the human factor, which is what I'm interested in as a psychologist. So it examines some of the consequences, behavioral consequences that living in the AI age has had on human behavior. And mostly I focus on some of the dark side traits or tendencies that are being unleashed by you know, our ubiquitous um, and omnipresent kind of immersion in this sea of uh, predictive algorithms and, you know, data and uh, kind of uh, machine learning tools that actually have done a very good job influencing us. Things like, you know, the fact that we're becoming very impatient, very impulsive and unable to, you know, attend to something for more than five seconds. I'm sure, you know, in the process of saying this, I lost some of our listeners already. The fact that, uh, you know, we're losing self-control and we're easily distracted. The fact that we have become almost very narcissistic in a cultural sense, behaviors that were uh, seen as obnoxious or undesirable in the analog world are now commonplace. Um, you know, we're all spending so much time self-promoting, talking about ourselves, and have lost any sense of inappropriate self-disclosure or censorship when it comes to sharing what we do. And I think the worrying ones is that we have actually become far more boring and predictable and are exercising uh, far less of many of the faculties that actually made us the most adaptable species on earth. We're using our creativity and curiosity less. And uh, when we outsource thinking, we obviously end up thinking less as well. So that's probably the negative part. The book finishes on a more positive note with a call to action to reclaim some of the things that actually make us unique. And I think we're living at a very interesting point in time. Obviously, now with chat, chat GPT, a lot of this has been put into context in the context of one tool, but whereby we can redefine our humanity by focusing on the things that machines are not able to do. Display empathy, kindness, consideration, and general curiosity, and actually interact with others on a humane level. And I think that will be the USP for humanity in the years to come. Yeah, great, great summary, and 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 obviously most of the people listening to this podcast are are working as HR professionals uh, at varying levels in organisations around the world. So I think it's going to be interesting to touch on those behavioural and human aspects uh, rather than the actual technology it, it itself. I think we might well we lose me if we talk about the technology too much. Um, so we'll touch on some of those um, those topics I think as we move forward. So. Really, to, to, to all those negatives that, that, that you highlighted there, Thomas, and obviously I think all of us will recognize to a greater or lesser degree some of those, um, it may be in ourselves, but also in some of the people that we interact with, families, colleagues, uh, etc. You know, if, if AI is being created to supposedly enhance our lives, then, then why is it that it also brings out the worst in us? Well, it's a great question, and I think primarily because the definition of enhance means to optimize a world for efficiency, productivity, pace, and those are no doubt important aspects of uh, progress and critical engines of capitalism and you know for-profit work and corporations, but they do squeeze out our humanity and actually, you know, have this paradoxical effect where whereby they almost make us act like machines 
Uh, I find this really interesting from a philosophical uh, point of view or on a philosophical level, which is that, you know, we, we spent much of the last decade worrying about how AI may automate jobs and work and, you know, how we would need to reskill and upskill ourselves, which are really important questions. But in the process, we've sort of automated ourselves because even within the knowledge economy, what most people like you and I spend doing on an average day is really be glued to our screens or devices and engage on a flurry of repetitive activities that involve classifying X as something or coding and training the algorithms so that they can predict us better. And in the process, we've become much more predictable ourselves because if what everybody does is just, you know, hit keys or stroke keys uh, in response to you know, algorithmic nudges, then anybody uh, who isn't human or, you know, would arrive to this world from another planet or galaxy and observe our behaviors would it would perceive or observe very little uh, in the form of creativity, imagination, etc. So actually, again, when you create machines that do the thinking and even some of the creative uh, production for us, then the question is, what is there for us left to do? I mean, when you create a dishwasher, it makes sense that you spend less time washing the dishes and maybe you can, you know, go for a walk or think or write poetry. But when you can create technologies that can do all these creative things and you end up just, you know, training it to become better, you actually become more predictable and less interesting as a species. How can we ensure that we reclaim the qualities that make us special as humans instead of diluting ourselves and making ourselves more predictable as a uh, as a result of ai yeah you know i think uh, it really starts with uh, being self-aware or aware of the situation we're in this really is um probably my main objective with the book is to sort of you know if ai is uh, like a mirror we can put uh, in front of humanity to see how it's reflected on it. I wanted to do a book that reflects, you know, that reflection in a way. So it isn't going to go away as any technology. It's neither good or bad or neutral, as somebody said, right? So it's up to us to use it in the best way. I think an awareness of the problematic behaviors that have, you know, arisen from it is the starting point. And, you know, next I would say, really to to understand that we can be in the driving seat, the driver's seats, and be more agentic, kind of uh, managing ourselves and our time in a way that doesn't fall trap of this delusion that we can do all these things at once, that it can we, we can be much more productive if we multitask, that we can actually have three or four screens in front of us and be simultaneously, you know, exchanging emoji or memes with our friends, uh, reacting to certain news or what happened in, you know, favorite sports match while talking to our colleagues, while being on a Zoom team, while, you know, because our attention is finite and our cognitive resources are finite. So, you know, if we kid ourselves or deceive ourselves into thinking that we can be productivity machines, we really are squeezing ourselves out of humanity and out of the things that, you know. So I think in a way, and obviously I don't have a prescriptive uh, solution, there is no silver bullet, but I think we can learn and get inspired from certain analogies. And the one that I think of is, you know, that this is sort of the intellectual or cognitive equivalent to what happened over hundreds of years when the Industrial Revolution was successfully applied to optimize food supply 
you could think of a scenario and in some ways the fact that obesity is a widespread epidemic in the world actually confirms this whereby when we evolve uh, our cultures or we drive progress in a way that goes from food scarcity to the ubiquity of food or a food surplus and actually we optimize our lives to be less mobile and to be you know stuck in our offices uh, sitting in our chairs and looking at our screen it's no wonder then that unless you have self-control you become morbidly obese and you suffer from all these uh, health problems same goes in a way with the ai age and information ubiquity of information by which i mean every meme you get from your friends every bit or bite size of fake news and all of these very very smartly and cleverly engineered algorithms that are competing for your attention lead to an information glut that doesn't translate into a you know nutritious meal for your hungry mind and it actually diminishes your hungry mind so in a way you know just like in italy they created the slow food movement to uh, have an antidote to the fast food movement i think we need the intellectual equivalent for it and by which i mean even organizations and managers which i think why i am somewhat uh, optimistic by the recent rise of the sort of learning and development function and the fact that it's now far more serious and more influential than it was five or ten years ago but it still has to change in how it operates because we really need to provide the conditions the incentives and the freedom and the space for people to develop and grow intellectually and that's in competition, in direct competition and tension to what all the technologies out there are doing. They want to actually um, see us using less and less of our creativity, less and less of our thinking and our imagination so that we just react to this influencing machines and tools and nudgets and uh, kind of uh, other uh, technologies that actually really lead us to act like automata, not like humans. What, what's your synopsis on, on what AI means for the present and, of course, maybe the future of recruitment as well? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think first in, in, in the space of human capital or HR, uh, it's important to kind of uh, demystify uh, AI because uh, it's very far from being kind of uh, robots or cyborgs or anything dystopian that we may have seen even 40 years ago in hollywood or the movies and mostly it's something that happens to the data it mostly still is confined to data science and really mostly what we mean uh, by ai for hr or nhr on human capital including people analytics which of course is a field that you've been very very active and um, influencing in in a very important direction it really is something that uh, translates data into insights, hopefully actionable insights. And so whether that is, you know, machine learning models or natural language processing, but it's something that happens to the data with maybe the only peculiarity that these algorithms have the capacity to teach themselves after getting minimal instructions and they continue to evolve and get better. So again, chat GPT, which is not a very catchy name, is a very good example of that because a couple of years ago it was very basic and now it really feels like you are speaking to a human or somebody like you know scarlett johansson in the movie hair although it's not scarlett johansson or you know as as advanced either which um, is a good disclaimer for those who actually might think there is a similarity there or not now so i think recruitment is one of the areas in which this technology or this data science has been applied the most 
primarily because there's still a lot of transactional, repetitive, and standardized activity that underpins talent acquisition, talent management, and you know the, the identification part as well. So if it's about attracting, processing, sourcing, and assessing, we no longer need a human recruiter to spend three minutes, which really was down to 30 seconds, examining whether a resume has the right keywords that match a job description, you know, resume parsing technology can do that very well. Equally, uh, in the future, because we're not there today, we might not need a human interviewer to sit in front of a candidate and, you know, match their answers to a very well-defined template of competencies or, you know, a grid of potential. Uh, today, really, in most areas, a combination of artificial intelligence and human intelligence or expertise will provide superior results than one without the other. But there is no question that there is low-hanging fruit and room for improvement because we're still living in a world where most organizations complain that they can't find the right talent and most employees complain that they can't find the right job, career or employer. And, you know, if there is a formula for matching people's skills, potential and talents to the right environment and to the right culture and to the right career, and there is a logic, there is no question that a machine will be able to identify that logic, if not better than humans, in a more consistent and predictable way. Because you might be a great interviewer, but perhaps today you're off, you're hungover, you're sad, you're depressed, you know, you broke up with your partner or maybe Argentina won and you're so happy that you're going to offer me a promotion or a job, even though I'm rubbish, you know? So I think it's certainly a technology that is really potentially disruptive and worth exploring. Today, we find that it's best utilized for some of the, um, for some of the phases of recruitment rather than the whole thing. And I think we're probably going to stay in this space for the next five years. You know, the bet we're making, for example, at Mount Park Group is that there will be recruiters in the future, but they will have to act much more like career managers or talent coaches, uh, understanding what clients want, understanding what candidates and job seekers want, and really filling the gaps and the blanks that machines cannot fill and don't know how to decode because they're very linear. Once I know that you're a cybersecurity analyst, you know, how do I know what you really want? And, you know, how can I actually get a holistic and really detailed and accurate picture of your soul and the person you are? I mean, a machine cannot do that. You know, they're getting better. Uh, humans sometimes cannot do that either, but we need to reskill and upskill humans as more and more as machines continue to upgrade themselves. Let's pause for a moment and thank Workday, our sponsor for this series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Workday is a leading provider of enterprise cloud applications for HR and finance, helping customers adapt and thrive in a changing world. Workday is also a leader in the Gartner Magic Quadrant for cloud HCM suites. And that's just one of the reasons why the world's top companies trust Workday to deliver for them. Organizations ranging from medium-sized businesses to more than 50% of the Fortune 500 have chosen Workday to help build HR systems and implement workforce analytics solutions, including Netflix, Sanofi, AstraZeneca, and Rolls-Royce. Join them and find out more by heading to Workday.com. That's Workday.com.
there's a lot of more dystopian stories around you know the impact that ai is going to have on jobs and i mean you read as many articles and as i that it's going to you know replace you know x million jobs by you know 2025 or 2030 but as you write the book and as we've talked about previously it creates new jobs um as well so you know as humans we're all susceptible to biases you know and ultimately it's 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 humans, arguably, that are training a lot of these machines to, to to do a lot of this work. So AI might well be designed to reduce bias in recruitment and performance management. Um, but those, as we said, those who are designing and training these algorithms may be incorporating their own biases, biases into the uh, or hard coding that their biases into the technology, which obviously means that the technology isn't neutral after all. You know, what are your thoughts on this? I know it's something that you're particularly passionate about. You've written a lot about, uh, and more importantly, how what steps could we take to avoid this? Yeah, and it's a timely question because I spent uh, many hours yesterday night actually uh, chatting to Chat GPT uh, about its biases and asking it to tell me how it's different from humans and similar, etc. And at multiple points, it told me that you know it can be biased because the data that it utilizes is um, you know human opinion and information. And so obviously that's the big one, right? So. It's not necessarily because we're using to hu- we're using humans, by which I mean not you know a bunch of uh, young uh, white dudes uh, in Silicon Valley with their hoodies who are deliberately trying to take down humanity or uh, uh, advance chauvinism or racism in the world, but the humans that are used to code the information that algorithms use is not necessarily because AI requires human coding that the data will be. Um, bias uh, or polluted or contaminated but because we are training ai to de-bias very subjective uh, human instances and interactions so when we use humans to train ai to understand whether the objects in a map are trees or traffic lights or other humans or cars it's relatively easy to do that you know because any human uh, can tell if something is a car, a tree, or a traffic light. Although, mind you, I, I have—I confess that I have failed the cybersecurity test myself. But when we ask humans to tell AI whether somebody is a good performer, or a great leader, <laughs> or a good manager, you can see there's a lot of subjectivity there. We've known for hundreds of years that the reliability of performance ratings is very low and that there's a lot of politics and nepotism and biases that get absorbed there. Even if you have well-meaning and open-minded humans that have undergone a lot of unconscious bias training, I mean, when they say, this is the best person in my team or this is the best candidate in a job interview, they don't even know whether that's because they really mean it, they're very good, or because that person supports Manchester United or happens to have a similar accent to them or happens to not be from Germany or Mexico. So it's inevitable that the data that feeds the algorithms will be contaminated and polluted. But I think this is a great opportunity to actually use AI to expose these biases. And I think as a diagnostic tool, you know, so for example, yes, it is a a bit of a horror story when we read that Amazon or Microsoft have tried to use AI to improve their recruitment or selection, and they ended up with a surplus of middle-aged white male engineers. That's not because of the algorithm, that's because of the culture. And if AI can tell us that in those cultures, too many middle-aged white male engineers get promoted, and science tells us that that's not meritocratic, 
then, you know, AI has given us the opportunity to actually devise the organization. So I think it's a great example of how machines and data or, you know, algorithms and AI on the one hand and well-meaning, smart and open-minded humans on the other one can collaborate to advance diversity. Um, and, you know, and I think that uh, we will see in the next year's uh, a lot of progress in what I think is the area of sort of inclusion analytics or diversity analytics. And so if AI is something that happens to the data, we are in the driving seats when it comes to deciding what insights do we want to extract and how can we utilize those insights to improve fairness, not just productivity, but also equity, inclusion, and fairness. What are the ethical considerations are you think that those HR and people analytics, people professionals that are listening should, should keep in mind when using AI in, in, in HR and, and people analytics in particular? Yeah, and I think, you know, I would boil it down to four or five really simple and non-technical, almost commonsensical principles, which is, you know, the first, accuracy. I mean, if if a model or an algorithm or a technology, really, this was the same with assessments before AI arrived, if it's not accurate, it cannot be ethical, right? If, it, if it's creating the illusion of accuracy, as unfortunately it happens too often now that we have a proliferation of dashboards in the company and everybody has one or two dashboards per person and it looks great, but then if the data and the models that feed those dashboards are erroneous and inaccuracy, it's, it's a big problem, you know? You're going to end up making worse decisions than before. So accuracy is the first one. The second one is transparency. I think there is n absolutely no need to hide the purpose and the goal from uh, consumers or employees or leaders or managers, whoever they are, the key stakeholders or the key, key beneficiaries or uh, participants are of the process. So make it very clear why you're doing something and you know what you're hoping to achieve. The third is consent. People should be able to opt in to whatever it is. So even if I tell you, hey, David, uh, I'm going to have tons of algorithms mining all of your emails to realize whether you're worthy of promotion or not, which might be good if you're very hardworking and you feel that you've been disadvantaged by a prejudiced manager in the past and bad if you enjoy slacking and you, know, and, and, and you enjoy the performative aspect of job performance more than the actual performance itself. But I should give you the choice. You should be able to opt in, and that should be based on transparency and transparency and accuracy. The fourth, I think, is probably the one that subsumes all the others. There should be a benefit for the user. You should actually benefit. So if I'm rolling out a new AI-based recruitment system or internal promotion system or uh, even like a virtual or digital automated coach, there should be a benefit by which we mean not that it's perfect, but it has to be better than what you had before. So again, here it might be that a video interview technology is still quite inaccurate, but if it's far more accurate than a human interviewer, we should roll it out. And the fifth one is perhaps more aspirational and longer term, although it's addressed a little bit today when we talk about explainable AI being one of the pillars of ethics. But for me, AI, as any new technology in this space, needs to actually improve our understanding. 
it needs to boost self-awareness. It needs to provide people with feedback. Now, you know, it might be that I'm using algorithms to promote the right person and the organization thrives and people thrive and I have a more meritocratic culture, but it's not enough for me. I also want to help people understand themselves and democratize some of the information that algorithms are already extracting. But I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if all the data you have given away to Uber, Netflix, Amazon, Spotify, etc., could be synthesized and tell you something about you that makes you a better person. Right now, you don't know. You know, you don't know what it means. And you know, big tech companies might not know either. But the information is there to enhance our understanding. And with that, I think we can start to address some of the creepy dynamics of algorithms influencing us in a way that is almost spooky. I think somebody once said, AI is either creepy or crappy. It's crappy when it doesn't work, and it's creepy when it works too well, and we don't know how. But I think some of this understanding that it can have about consumers should be shared so that we increase our rationality, our maturity, and we don't take shortcuts influencing people based on their ignorance rather than their self-understanding or self-awareness. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. I, I love your the last chapter, the House Be Human, where you say where you kind of look and, and, and put a more positive spin on it. And I think you, in your, you actually wrote, we have a significant chance to evolve as a species if we can capitalize on the AI revolution to make work more meaning, meaningful, uh, unlock our potential, boost our understanding of ourselves and others, and create a less biased and more rational and meaningful world. That's just a quote. It's not the whole paragraph for people. So do read, do get the book so you can read the rest of it. I think that leads on to the, the next um, question or well, next discussion I'd like to go move on to. Really curious to learn your thoughts on this. It, you know, obviously the book you said focused on the current. So I'm now going to ask you to, to look to the future a little bit. How do you think the use of AI in, in HR will evolve over the next few years? And appreciate you don't have a crystal ball, so it's just your views. So I won't hold you to them. Yeah. And, you know, in a way, I think I confess that I think I can't remember who once said, you know, I think it was Niels Bohr or somebody from the quantum physics movement that the best way to predict the future is to create it. Cannot obviously create it, but some of the stuff that I write about and say that is more future oriented is intended to be prescriptive rather than predictive, right? So I'm hoping that if we say, okay, this will happen, then people think that it should happen and then they actually do it. So sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But look, I am really, well, first a strong believer, even if I'm also a critic of, I'm a, a fundamentally a believer of the value of HR as a function in organizations. And I think the past 10 or 15 years have only confirmed that all organizations have people problems 
and the answers to the questions about people are not going to come from IT, uh, the legal department, the marketing department, or uh, you know the sales department. They're going to come from HR. And with that, we have seen an impressive acceleration in sophistication and in subject matter expertise within the HR function, which started really as scientific management 100 years ago. And it has a bad rep because we associated with assembly lines and tailor, but actually a lot of that is still present when organizations try to turn their companies into uh, an HR laboratory and they have an experimental mindset to know, to test what works and what doesn't because they know they don't have all the answers. Then HR kind of went into the dark phases of the bureaucratic or legal phase, which still gives us a bad reputation and the administrative phase, if you want, or the Soviet phase, if we might say so. Then it arrived on this kind of spiritual or philosophical phase, which was all about talent. You know, ever since McKinsey talked about the importance of the war for talent, etc., and really created that uh, phase. And now we're in the people analytics phase, which you write about and talk about all the time. And I'm sure our listeners are very active in the AI phase is the people analytics phase 2.0. But progress in HR will come from successfully integrating all of these phases of remembering that it's really about connecting the science or bringing the science to life in organizations, because uh, I'm very happy when people read my books and my articles, and I'm sure you are as well, when you create that uh, incredible list of uh, contributions every month. But ultimately, smart HR leaders need to find the answers by themselves and create the conditions where they can test what works in their companies and what doesn't, which of course is covered in all of the articles you shared. Also, we need to remember the legal boundaries and constraints. Also, we need to remember the philosophical and psychological aspects because these questions, what is talent? What is leadership? What is a high potential? And what is engagement? Or how do I create a good and effective culture? They're not going to come from algorithms. They are fundamental human questions. And I think if we can really use AI to augment the things we always known have worked about leadership and management and performance and employees, then, you know, we can create more meritocratic organizations, which I think really is the direction that we should be going with organizations is to increase meritocracies. This may sound very philosophical, but we have done a lot of progress in the last 100 years in reducing nepotism and reducing, you know, bias and privilege, but with progress comes increase in expectations as well. And, you know, as we achieve certain things, expectations rise in turn. So I think that's the agenda. There has never been a more complex and difficult and challenging time to be a CHRO or a talent management head, etc. But there has never been a more impactful time to be on this role. And, you know, despite all of these kind of technical details and, you know, nuances and sort of the granular aspect, ultimately, if a CHRO doesn't have the buy-in of their CEO and of the C-suite, they will continue to be on the menu rather than having a seat at the table. You know, with this evolution to people analytics 2.0, as you called it, with, with AI and, and, and incorporating some of these tools more into, into day-to-day day HR, how would you say this changes the role of the traditional HR professional? I've asked because many of them are listening, so I think they'll be interested. Uh, and what skills do you think HR professionals need to increasingly acquire uh, in, in this new age? So I think the fundamental change is the HR professional 
who really was under pressure for becoming a generalist in the last, you know, five or 10 years now has to be a connector more than a generalist or a generalist and a connector. And so I think, you know, each of the different parts of the puzzle are evolving and progressing and advancing. You know, there is the data side, there is the strategy side, the business side, the technology side, uh, and even the psychological kind of, uh, or content side of talent management. And then, of course, there is the business side and, you know, your P&L, profit, sales, etc. I think strong HR professionals will have almost a peripheral, accurate peripheral view of this and the ability to connect all these things in a way that nobody else within the organization does. And obviously, people are at the center of this, but really understanding how knowledge of people can connect the different parts and you know how to enable these different parts to talk to each other and be deeply intertwined is what great HR professionals need to do today and will continue to uh, have to do in the future. And with that comes, you know, uh, the importance of curiosity. You talked about the competencies that, you know, curiosity is really at the center. Social skills, of course, even down to very basic uh, things like listening, empathy to understand what other people are thinking and put yourself in other people's shoes. Obviously, leadership and management skills to manage yourself first and then manage and broker all these relationships next. So I think, you know, it has become a very sociable role. It has become a very humble and curious role. And, you know, if people follow this script or this pattern, I don't think they need to fear automation because they will be put there in the service of resisting automation and ensuring that people are reskilled and upskilled for the future and ensuring that organizations are in a strong way to be accelerated by AI as opposed to disruptive or, you know, um, made obsolete by it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I agree with all of that. And it's, you know, it's an exciting time to be an HR professional, if, if similarly to, to CHRO is challenging as well. You know, there's a lot to, to bring aboard. And as you talked about earlier, you know, yes, you've got to acquire some of the technical skills, you know, um, you know be able to, you know, interpret data, um, visualize data. Um, but actually, as you said, a lot of it is classic HR skills, the ability to influence people, ask the right questions, uh, talking the language of the, uh, you know, of, of the business, you know, to, to try and drive decisions because ultimately analytics is about decision support and, and driving better outcomes uh, for the business and, and employees. So, so yeah, so we, we've reached, um, unfortunately, uh, Thomas, we've reached the end of, uh, of it. This is a question that we ask, um, we're asking everyone on this series, in fact, the last couple of series as well. Um, you know, and then you would have touched on some of this today, but we can think broader now, I think, than, than technology. What do you think HR leaders need to be thinking about most in the next, say, 12 to 24 months, you know? And related to that, what would be your biggest concern and, and what do you see as the biggest opportunity? Yeah, so I'm going to recycle from my answer when you kindly asked me, I think at the end of last year, and you were creating the big trends for this year. I'm going to, I'm going to recycle that because I think that's the one that keeps me up at night and would certainly keep me up at night if I were a CHRO and an HR leader, which is really 
how to humanize the workplace and how to not just understand the impact, both positive and negative, of all these technologies which are growing and you know spreading and accelerating, uh, if not exponentially, incrementally, which is still enough, how to uh, cultivate and uh, create environments in which we don't see people as high-performing machines, uh, but we see people as humans. And so injecting a much-needed dose of humanity in the workplace, while, of course, not sacrificing or compromising productivity and all the things that you know, businesses need to do, especially at a time where they're under pressure. And, you know, what the potential risks or challenges are of this is that much like anybody else in an organization, HR professionals are being regarded as productivity machines themselves. And they have scorecards and they have KPIs. And I'm sure most of them are not humanized work or uh, make uh, create environments where we treat people as human beings. But I think fundamentally, the trend we have seen over the past 10 or 15 years to focus less on the what and more on the how is now being extended to maybe, you know, really understand that there is an attention between the two and that the best way to focus on the how is to humanize work and create humane relationships with people. Uh, if you do that, then the what will take care of itself. And if you see attention, you know, I think we've both met managers and said, oh, you know, I reached my results, but my engagement is not high or, you know, my turnaround, the uh, turnover is still high, etc. The two are not incompatible. And if you focus on the how, the what takes care of itself. So I really think that's really what HR needs to be redefined as, as well, instead of human resources, almost humane resources or resources for a more humane workforce. And I think each and one of our listeners, if they are in this space and if they are HR professionals, should be thinking more deliberately and more seriously about this, especially if it isn't part of their scorecard. Yeah. And, and maybe with all the tools that HR professionals increasingly have at their disposal and the data, you know, ultimately, if we can start to show to leaders that creating that more humane workplace actually leads to better business results and a healthier workforce, then why wouldn't we do it? So I guess that's a, a, a wish. Um, you know, I think we do see it, to, you know, in, in pockets of, of organizations that, but that could be a, a responsibility for us to take on as a profession, which, you know, create, as you said, those healthier, more humane workplaces and actually show that it actually leads to business results as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's no different in a way that when we read about the happiest nations in the world, you need uh, reliable metrics, KPIs, and measures to actually make that comparison. But the drivers, the enablers, and the contributors of higher levels of happiness, whether that's Singapore, Denmark, or Costa Rica, have nothing to do with data and metrics, have to do with how people behave, how they treat each other, and how they interact. So same goes for organization. Uh, the AI, the analytics, and the data are there to tell us what goes on and to tell us whether we're in the right direction or not. But the decisions, the behaviors, the motives, and uh, you know, fundamentally the relationships, they have to do with human factors, not with technology or data. Thomas, thank you so much for being a guest again on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I always enjoy our conversations. Can you can you let listeners know how they can 
find you on social media, learn more about your work and about the new book as well? Yeah, so the easiest way is to go to my website, which is drthomas with no h.com. So D-R-T-O-M-A-S dot com. And they can find everything there. Perfect. Thanks very much for your time, Thomas. I hope to see you in person again. I think last time we saw each other in person was in Stockholm um, at a dinner that Katarina Burke had uh, kindly organized. So uh, look forward to doing that again, hopefully yes. some point in, uh, in, in 2023. And yeah, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks again for the invite. Thank you for tuning in to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tomas and want to extend a big thank you to him for his valuable insights. Don't forget to subscribe if you like what you heard and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so we can keep supporting the HR field with our content. To learn more from us at Insight222 and to keep up with the latest industry trends, sign up to our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. Have a wonderful day and see you next week.